Well, good morning again. I am glad you're here, because <clears throat> I wasn't sure this morning. And um, if you remember, those of you who were here last Sunday, I talked about how in Revelation it says that God has created all things for his pleasure. Well, apparently God's pleasure is that he loves snow. And he loves that we love snow. And uh, so um, we were joking yesterday and... Um, you know, after last Sunday and all that's gone on over these weeks, I said, I, I looked at the weather yesterday and I'm thinking, wow, that's, this is unbelievable. So I, I, I thought about it and I, I looked around and um, so I, I, I looked around at the beginning. I'm thinking, man, there's hardly anybody here. This is what I anticipated, but I'm glad you showed up. Um, so I'm not sure if it's the weather or if it is the time change and that in about um, 20 minutes, about 100 people are going to show up. Um, maybe, maybe not, or it's um, uh, the um, um, March break, but uh, we're glad you're here. So we are doing a series on the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to look at the First Commandment, um, and so we're going to read two slides. Uh, I'm going to read the yellow, you're going to read the black, and let's stand together. This is from the book of Exodus chapter 20, and also from the book of Exodus chapter 32, and uh, so this is what it says. I hope. Oh, I guess I should turn it on. That will help. Here we go. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. It's not bad for a time change Sunday. It's not bad at all. Let's pray together. Father, again we pause and we give you thanks and praise. And again we acknowledge that without you, we are nothing and we are lost. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and your incredible exhibition of your love and mercy in him and for the work and ministry of the spirit that again takes everything you've accomplished and makes it applicable in our lives and available and possible so lord we ask now for the work and ministry of the holy spirit to give us a voice to speak ears to hear minds to comprehend hearts to understand and particularly as we leave this place today and leave this property and this facility and go out into our lives in the world from Monday to Saturday and ask in our marriages and our relationships and in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our places of work and places where we are educated and where we get our services, Lord, that you would help us to live out what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, and that you would help us to do that in tangible, practical, meaningful ways in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated again? So I guess I could say for a, a subtitle this morning, this might be Loving God in an Age of Idolatry. Now the positive thing, of course, is the first four commandments help us and teach us how to love God. That's the positive part, loving God. But the negative part 
is the idea of a living and loving God, loving God in an age of idolatry. And loving God in an age of idolatry is not as easy as one may think. Now, the first thing that we notice in this text is that there is descriptions of God. Descriptions of God. And uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 sort of give us the preamble, if you will, uh, that happens before we actually read the Ten Commandments. And the, the first verse that we read in the second verse says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the first thing we notice is God's uniqueness, that he is the I am. I am the Lord your God. And I am, of course, reminds us and reminded of the people of Israel of the burning bush, where Moses, of course, is in the desert and he, God appears to him in a bush. Not that it's significant that a, bur- bush, that a bush is on fire, but it's significant that the bush is on fire and it's not burning up, it's not being consumed. And of course, we know the story, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, God tells Moses to take his uh, shoes off, and there God reveals himself, and this is what we read in Exodus 3.14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am as sent me to you. Now, there is a reason why God refused to define himself other than I am. Because any definition is a limit. The second thing that we notice is God's grace is stated in these words, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that God delivered the people of Israel for no other reason than for his grace. And of course, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and other texts actually bear this out where it says that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. And a little bit later down, it says in verse 8, and be, it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he made and swore to your fathers. The point is that it was not because of them that God brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's not because the people of Israel, the ancient people of Israel, were any more important or valuable than any other people on the earth is that God chose them and God selected them. And they did not bring themselves out of the land of Egypt any more than you and I brought ourselves out of the grasp of sin. And so on the one hand, God is not defined by abstract thought, but rather God defines himself as he discloses himself in personal encounter and in relationship. But on the other hand, we are not to become too familiar with God. In other words, we are not to lose our sense of awe of who God is. Donald McCullough calls this the trivialization of God When we begin to lose our sense of awe, when we lose our sense of awe, we become too familiar with God. When we become, when we get too familiar with God, our approach to God can be a little bit too casual. Now, 
And don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting that we should be afraid of God or we should be scared of God. But what I am saying is that we are to have a reverential fear of God. This is what our text is telling us four times. Four times in the Bible we are told that God is a consuming fire. Four times. Four times in the Bible so that we make sure that we get it, that we understand who it is that we are dealing with. Donna McCullough said these words. He said, our worship has been replaced by the yawn of familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere perhaps, but no heat, no binding light, no power for purification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question. What is God? And the answer comes back, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging. And in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Charles Hodge said that, or rather described this statement as probably the greatest definition or the best definition of God ever penned by man. Now, this is the description of God that we are given here in the first two verses of Exodus. But what is our description of God? A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so that brings us to this. Distortions of God or misrepresentations of God. Violation of the first commandment starts with the trivializing of God. Gods of our own making. False views of God, and I'm going to give you six popular distortions of God that we know and understand today that violates the first commandment. The first one is the God of my cause. Abraham Lincoln was once asked if he thought God was on the side of the north in the Civil War, and to which he responded, he said, the real question is not whether God is on our side, but whether or not we are on God's side. I mean, do we not find it odd at times that two different enemies who claim God to be their source and their object and their subject of worship pray to God to win the war, to defeat their enemy. Doesn't that seem odd? I remember when we were in Bible college and uh, we played hockey on the Peterborough, on the uh, EPBC Flames. And uh, we were playing in this tournament, this Christian tournament. And um, we uh, invited somebody into the locker room just kind of to visit and to pray for us, you know, kind of we like, we're Christians, so we like to pray before hockey. Not that it means anything, but the Christian hockey that I've seen, but hey. Um, or that I've played, but we won't go there. 
And I remember this person praying for us, you know, and then rather than praying that, you know, everybody would have a good time and we'd be protected and no one get hurt, the person prayed that we would win with the assumption that the other Christian team in the other locker room should lose. In a book called A Time for Trumpets, it's a historical account of the Battle of the Bulge. Donald McDonald, sorry, Charles McDonald tells this story of this colonel who had been uh, forced to withdraw from this uh, bombarded uh, chateau in a small town in um, Belgium. And uh, McDonald says that leaving behind were a number of severely wounded soldiers on either side. And he went on to write these words. He says, also left behind. A whitewashed wall of one of the rooms in the basement was a charcoal drawing of Christ. Thorns on his head, tears on his cheeks. Whether drawn by a German or by an American, nobody would ever know. And then somebody made a comment in response to that charcoal drawing and said this, this is not an image that belongs to history, but one that judges it. So the God of my cause, and then of course there's the God of my understanding. We've all seen children who go to the beach and uh, they dig a hole and then they take their bucket and what they're going to do is they're going to take the ocean and they're going to put it in this hole that they've dug. Now we admire the grandeur of their attitude and their ambition, but the reality is we all know that there isn't any hole of any size on any continent that can contain the ocean. And neither can God be contained by any system of our thought or belief. I always chuckle when I look on my uh, shelves or when I think or read about systematic theology. Now, systematic theology is something that we learned in school when we went to college. And systematic theology is sort of the arranging of religious, biblical, and spiritual truths in a methodological, practical, and organized system. And I always chuckle and I think to myself, but God is anything but systematic. God is anything but methodological. God is anything but predictable or even practical for that matter. We do not know what we do not know. And so thirdly, there is the God of my experience. The things we experience in life are things that we most are most certain of. But God is beyond our experience. Matter of fact, maybe there are experiences that are beyond what you and I know. Because we do not know what we do not know. And then the fourth one is the God of my comfort. I mentioned the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I want to mention it again. The Westminster Shorter Catechism's first and most famous question is this. What is the chief 
end of man? And the answer comes back, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then somebody wrote this, and I don't know who. At one time, theologians argued that the chief purpose of mankind was to glorify God. Now it seems the logic has been reversed. And the chief purpose of God is to glorify mankind. Now God may or may not be interested in our comfort or our happiness. However, what I do think that God is interested in more than my happiness or my comfort is my character and my faithfulness and my obedience. And yours too, I think. And then the God of my success. That God wants you and me to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Maybe. Maybe not. But we do know this, that the drive to succeed is relentless. And so many of us get caught on the treadmill that leads to self-destruction. I like what someone said. Follow this now. It's hard to climb the ladder of success, especially when, if you're keeping your nose to the grindstone, while your shoulder is to the wheel, and your eye is on the ball, and your ear to the ground, which is an ungainly position. I think you'd have to play Twister to do that, wouldn't you? On the one hand, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being successful or having wealth, for that matter, as long as it doesn't have us. But on the other hand, God does not promise and is not the provider of our selfish desires. Robert Murray McShane said, it's not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. Now, I don't think you're going to be happy with the next one. So put your seatbelt on. The last one is the God of my country or my nation. Now, God is interested in Canada, but he's not Canadian. He did not come wrapped in a maple leaf. Scott was telling me they just got back from Florida, as did Pastor Kevin and Leanne, where it was really hot. It was 88 degrees or something like that in the shade, and it was just beautiful. But he was telling me that the, he, um, what was the, that church? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, anyway, huge black church in Florida with a huge stained glass window right in the front of it. And in the middle of the stained glass window is this huge um, depictment of Jesus. But he's black. Remind me of uh, a church I was at in Detroit, Michigan a bunch of years ago. And it was a black church. And they had uh, these beautiful murals all over the walls in the foyer. And they had this uh, mural of, um, of Jesus and the 12 disciples sitting at the Last Supper. And all of the disciples were black, as was Jesus. 
Listen, Jesus Christ was not black. And neither was he a wasp. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And neither was he Roman Catholic. And neither was he middle-class North American. He was a poor, olive-skinned Jew. And the only nation that God has set apart, the only nation, the one nation that God has set apart as a light to the nations is Israel. And the only nation on earth with a manifest destiny is the nation of Israel. All of these, and more, because there are more, are distortions of God both that are unbiblical and are unworthy representations of who he is. But God wants us, he wants me and you to experience the true reality of his person and of his grace. Anybody who knows me know that I love the Psalms. And every now and then the Psalms come up with what I call really healthy sarcasm. I used to tell my kids when they were young, sarcasm has no place in the believer's life. But it's in the Bible, so I don't know how to argue with that anymore. But this is what Psalm says. Psalm 50, verse 21, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought, God says, that I was like yourself? He's not like me. He's not like you. He's not like us at all. But that brings and then brings us this to this. Substitutions of God. Now, I don't think that we can really look at the first commandment or Pastor Kevin next week on the second commandment, can really look at any of these commandments without dealing with some, at least some aspect of idolatry and idols. Because idolatry and idols is so prevalent in the, the story of the Bible as they are prevalent in our culture. What I find interesting and not coincidental and not happenstance is that the golden calf event takes place at the same time as the giving of the Ten Commandments. The distance between the I am that we just spoke about and the golden calf is not that far. And it's not that far in our lives as well. The distance from worshiping and serving the true God, the I am of the Bible, and being brought into or manipulated into or deceived into idolatry is not that far. That's the point. How is it possible that they can move so quickly from Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments into the worship of the golden calf? Well, let me answer that question with this one. What is an idol? What makes an idol an idol? Anything that is inflated to function as a substitute for God in our lives or in our culture 
is an idol. Idolatry externalizes a false image of the one true God. Idolatry always reduces to the worship of something made with hands. It always reduces to something, to the worship of something made with hands. In our text in, in, that we read at the beginning in Exodus chapter 32, it tells us very clearly that they fashioned with their hands the golden calf and then they built an altar to it. And the repeated caution in the Bible is against putting confidence in the power of the work of our own hands. This is why in the story of Gideon with his, with his um, war against the Midianites, his conflict with the Midianites, that his army was reduced from 32,000 to 300. For the sole reason so that the ancient people of Israel could never say our own hands have done this. Idols often reflect the culture in which we live. The image of the golden calf reflected ancient Israel's life in Egypt. And when the going got tough, they turned their attention toward what they knew, which was something in the culture that they were familiar with. The devil's work and idol's work is always obstruction, distraction, and diversion. Idols have a repetitive nature to them. Think about your own life for a minute. What happens to us when stress and boredom creeps in? What happens to us when stress and boredom creeps into our lives? If we're not careful, we can be driven back to our idol over and over again. So when Moses is up on the mountain and the people become impatient and they panic, what they assumed was God had abandoned them and in spiritual terms that God's presence was withdrawn from them. Have you ever felt like that? You ever felt where in in your life where God's presence seemed to be withdrawn from you? Have you ever felt that God's presence was just, no matter what you did, you couldn't find it, you couldn't reach it? I have. And in those moments, in those moments, when I can't seem to reach and can't seem to experience God's presence, In those moments, I'm tempted to turn towards something or someone else other than God. There is a repetitive nature to idols, as there is an addictive nature to idols. Now, the first one, of course, that we want to go with, because it's the most familiar, the one that we're most seem to ride our hobby horse on is substance abuse, alcohol and drugs and all those kinds of things. But what about gambling? What about sex? What about relationships? What about money? What about power? What about work? 
What about food? What about eating? What about shopping? Consuming. But the question is, when it comes to the addictive nature of idols, is what or who is consuming whom? The other thing that idols do is that idols obscure a rival who God is. The text in in Exodus chapter 32 verse 8 says this, God is speaking and he says to Moses about the people of Israel, they have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. How can we tell? How can you and I tell if something is obscuring or competing with God in our lives? How can we know that? Well, one of the ways that we can know that is that if that thing, that person, gives, that we give inordinate attention to it, an inordinate amount of attention to it, or money, or time, or energy, it's an idol. If we give an inordinate amount of attention to something, whether it's time, money, resources, or energy, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this an idol? And does it obscure a rival? God's attention in my life. And then the last one is this. Idols are always surrounded by rationalism. Now, there is a, a really funny text in the Bible. It's when uh, Moses comes down and he confronts Aaron. Aaron has made this golden calf. And Moses comes down and he says to Aaron, what in the world have you done? Gets a good question. And this is what Aaron's response is. Right out of the Bible. He says, so I said to them, to the people, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. Isn't that not hilarious? I mean, it would be comical if it wasn't so truthfully jarring. We make our excuses and, our, and we rationalize our idolatry, but it is problematic. Now, pull your seatbelt on a little bit more tightly because I have a question for us. And the question is this. Idols. Do we have any? Do I have idols in my life? Do you have idols in your life? Do we have any? Now, I I, don't need you to raise your hand. I don't need you to tell me this is now between you and God as it is between me and God. But idols, do we have any in our lives? 
Now, when I started talking about idols and idolatry and the nature of idols, what was the first thing that popped into your mind? What was the thing that you began thinking about in your life? Whatever that thing was, I'm going to suggest to you that the Spirit of God may be putting his finger on our lives and identifying an idol in our lives. So whatever it was that came to mind, when I started talking about idols and idolatry and the nature of idols, what was it that came into our minds? And most likely, it was an idol. But immediately, we want to rationalize it. Immediately, we want to begin to make excuses in our minds. We want to rationalize it. No, no, no. Idolatry is so sinister, treacherous, and dangerous that it must be guarded against regularly. I want to finish with where we started. I'm going to invite the musicians to come. And um, I was reading uh, John Piper, and Piper said this. Actually, I kind of stumbled on it, the truth were told. He said, people are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. Let me read it again. People are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis for their troubled lives. The majesty of God, he says, is an unknown cure. And then he went on to tell this story. He said, years ago, in January, at the beginning of the year, I decided to preach on the holiness of God. So I did my best, he says, to display the majesty and the glory of such a great and holy God. I gave not one word of application to people's lives. And he goes on to say that application is absolutely essential in the normal course of preaching. But I felt on that day I should make a test. Would the passionate portrayal of the greatness of God in and of itself meet the needs of people? I didn't realize that not long before this Sunday in January that he's referring to, one of the young families in our church discovered that their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. It was incredibly traumatic. They were there that Sunday in January and they sat under that message. And Piper says, I have to wonder how many advisors to us pastors today would have said, can't you see your people are hurting? Can't you not come down from the heavens and get practical? Do you not realize what kind of people sit in front of you on Sunday mornings? And then he says, some weeks later, 
I learned the story about this family in our church. And he said, the husband took me aside on a Sunday after service, and he said, John, these have been the hardest months of our lives. He said, do you know what has gotten us through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave us that first week in January. It has been the rock we could stand on. So what about us? What about me? What about you? What about us? Is the greatness of God in his holiness and glory in and of itself enough to meet our needs? Is the greatness and the glory of God in his holiness and in his majesty enough to meet in and of itself, enough to meet your needs, my needs, and our needs?